I'm Viola Judah. I'm Anthony Fowler. I am Will Howell, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. So, when we think about what's happened over the last 20, 30 years in the media environment, there have been these extraordinary changes. We've seen this explosion of social media, the rise of new news sites online, increasing subscriber base for some national print outlets, Fox News. But amidst all this is a kind of decimation of local news. It's really one of the sort of most striking uh, developments of the last, I'd say, quarter century when you think about the ways that average citizens learn about politics. Yeah, and I have a feeling that it's harder and harder to learn about what's happening in your city or in your state or in your county. Recently in Chicago here, we had this huge controversy where uh, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, was negotiating with the teachers' union whether to open the schools or not. And they really tried to figure out what's going on. Like, I tried to form an informed opinion whether I should support Lori Lightfoot's stance and perhaps vote for her in the next election cycle or whether I should actually stand by the teachers. And I had a hard time finding article that would cover this issue in depth that would explain what the positions of the different parties are. It was extremely frustrating. Yeah, I mean, you spend your life thinking about politics and writing about it, and here you are trying to make sense of local events, right, local politics, and aren't able to kind of collect the most basic information that you need because of the decline of local newspapers and the adequacy of their coverage. So, boy, it's, it's like this is tied to like profound concerns about voter accountability and the health of our, our democracy and the extent to which we can hold elected officials account for the positions that they take um, and their performance in office. And Anthony, you talked to you talked to one of our colleagues who has a paper on precisely this topic. I did. I talked to Daniel Moskowitz, who just published a paper in the American Political Science Review, and it's on precisely the effects of exposure to local news. Um, to the extent that local news affects people's voting behavior, this might help us understand what's changed over the last few decades as local news has, has declined in its, in its reach and its popularity. All right, I am really happy to talk to my colleague, Daniel Moskowitz, assistant professor at the Harris School, who has written a lot of interesting papers about elections and representation. And in particular, we're going to talk today about the nationalization of U.S. elections. So what do you mean when you talk about the nationalization of U.S. elections? When people talk about the nationalization of elections, usually they mean that electoral outcomes are more closely tied to presidential election outcomes. That is, they're voting straight party ballots more more often than they used to. So what could drive that kind of behavior? So polarization, and that is that candidates within the same party are more similar to one another than they used to be. You know, if we go back to the 70s and 80s, a lot of Southern Democrats held very different policy positions than Northern Democrats did. So it wouldn't be unusual that Southern voters might split their ticket. That being said, we've observed this outside of the South still at a very fast rate, so we can't just attribute it to a Southern realignment that's going on. That's certainly one explanation, and it's kind of more of an elite-driven model of what's going on. Another potential explanation, which is the one that I sort of get at in, in, in the paper, is what people might call information or the nationalization of news. Voters have less information about candidates down ballot than they used to because we've experienced a massive upheaval in the news environment over the past 20 or 30 years. And so there's been a huge decrease in circulation of local newspapers. Employment at newspapers has declined enormously, 40% or so. To some extent, local television newscasts, audiences have decreased, though there are more hours of local television news than there used to be. 
But a consequence of the upheaval in the news environment is that it, it's probably more difficult for voters to get information about candidates for down-ballot offices. And a result is that they might just apply their assessment at the top of the ticket to these down-ballot races. So when it comes to you know measuring this nationalization phenomenon, what you focus on in your paper is split-ticket voting. How do you measure split-ticket voting, especially given that we have a secret ballot in the U.S. and we can't, we don't know which candidates each person voted for. So there, there are a couple ways of going up about doing it. One is, which is primarily what I do, is to focus on survey data. So individuals fill out these surveys about what happened in the past election, and they report who they voted for for not every office on the ballot, but kind of the major offices on the ballot, including House, Senate, Governor, President. An alternative, which I also do as sort of an extra check in the paper is to rely on precinct level data and use a precinct level proxy measure of split ticket voting. Um, there are some rare states like South Carolina for which they release ballot level data as part of an election audit. What I was able to do is I was able to look at what the true rate of split ticket voting was within precincts and then compare it with my proxy level measure at the precinct level. And I saw a very high correlation. And so that just kind of added some validity to the, to the use of the precinct level measure. But it makes interpretation of the quantities a little more difficult than using the survey measure of split ticket voting. So, so give us a sense of, as far as we know, how many people in America do cast split ticket votes and how has that changed compared to you know, some historic levels? So in the 2012 and 2016 elections for president-senator split ticket voting and president-governor split ticket voting, about 8 to 9 percent of individuals who cast a ballot in 2012 and 2016 cast a split president-senator or split president-governor ballot. Historically, that is much lower than it used to be. So for president-senator split ticket voting in the 70s and 80s, it was around 25 percent of voters cast a split president-senator ballot to give a sense of how much it's declined. So it's about a third of the rate that it used to be when it was kind of at its peak. And I think it's a, a pretty similar decline if we looked at president-house split ticket voting and, and that time trend. It was also above 20% in the 70s and 80s and then kind of declined starting in the 90s and 2000s and, and is below 10% today. You mentioned as one explanation for this, this informational story that maybe there are a lot of people who would vote split ticket, would vote maybe, maybe they would vote for Joe Biden for president and a Republican for governor, let's say, but they just don't even have very much information about the gubernatorial candidates in their state. And so they end up, they vote for the Democrat because they, you know, they usually agree with Democrats, even if maybe in some cases, if they looked into it, they would, they would switch and go the other way. So, so your paper is largely about that story and you have a pretty, I think, innovative and clever way of getting at that story that focuses on local news. So maybe some of our listeners who, you know, if you're a young person, you might think that local news is dead and doesn't matter. Is, is local news still relevant in American politics today? So I, I think the answer is yes, it's still relevant. Local television news in particular kind of is less subject to some of the economic pressures that local newspapers have faced. And that's just because people are still subscribing to cable. And in your cable subscription fee, there are retransmission fees that go back to local stations in order for that cable provider to include them in the channel lineup. 
and that helps fund their local news. And as it turns out, the FCC also has rules that require local over-the-air stations to provide a certain number of hours of local television news. The media environment is, and the economic environment is, is very different for local television stations than it is for local newspapers. But these local newspapers still do exist, even though lots of them have kind of either gone away or are a shadow of, of their former selves. A strong local newspaper in a media market Local television news benefits from that enormously because they do a lot of the sort of deep investigative reporting that then local television newscasts will feature that reporting. So it still plays an important role, but I, I would say that it, it plays less of a role than it used to. And, and what, what sense do we have of just the, the ratings and the numbers? How many people still watch their local news coverage on television with some regularity? So local television newscasts still actually have pretty amazingly high audiences, despite some decline in the audience of the late night newscast, which is traditionally the most watched news slot. I think that has declined about 30% uh, over the past decade. But nevertheless, if you look at recent Nielsen numbers, local news reached about 40% of working age adults in a, in a typical week in the first quarter of 2017. And these people watched on average about two and a half hours of local news in that week. Tell us a little bit more about your research design. So how do you go about estimating the effect of access to local news? That sounds like a hard problem. Yeah, media, media exposure is really difficult to study because people select into different sources of media. If I told you, for instance, that people who choose to expose themselves to Fox News are more conservative. I think both of us would be very skeptical to attribute their conservatism to exposure to Fox News. Consumers choose things and they choose things based on their pre-existing preferences. Um, so how do we know if the thing they choose to consume is actually causing any change in behavior or change in preferences, etc.? So I, I was seeking out some source of variation in exposure to local television news that people didn't get to choose whether or not they, they watched it or had access to it. And so what I did was I kind of used an empirical strategy that lots of others have used, and I used the geography of media markets. Today's media markets are, are mostly based on where television signals traveled way back when television first rolled out. And that resulted in the definition of media market boundaries. And due to various rules from the FCC, as well as kind of exclusivity contracts between um, networks and stations, those media market boundaries haven't changed much over time. And what it means is the media market you live in determines the access to what stations you have. And some of these media market boundaries, because they're idiosyncratic, cross state boundaries. So the Fort Wayne, Indiana media market goes into Ohio. Two Ohio counties are contained within the Fort Wayne media market. But 93% of Fort Wayne's media market population resides in Indiana and only 7% resides in Ohio. So if you happen to be uh, a resident of those two Ohio counties, it means that you're getting basically Indiana television stations. And the coverage of those Indiana television stations tends to focus on Indiana office holders, the Indiana governor, the Indiana senators, et cetera. So it's much more relevant to the audience that uh, lives within the state of Indiana than those 7% of that media market population that lives in Ohio. And so what I did was I used closed captioning data and the closed captioning data allowed me to look for mentions of office holders from different states 
from these stations in their local newscasts. And so I, I look for mentions of the governors and the senators in each of the states that have any population overlap with the media market. And what I found was that if you look at someone who lives in almost entirely out-of-state media market, that is a media market for which almost all of the residents of that media market are located in another state, they get about a half a mention per hour less of each senator and about 1.5 fewer mentions of their governor per hour of non-entertainment television. And then you also look at, you, you sort of check in within the survey data to see if it looks like indeed people in these in-state media markets actually do know more about their senators and governors. Yeah, so I used some what I call knowledge measures about those senators and governors based on the same survey data that I used to assess whether they engage in split ticket voting. So I look at whether they're able to recall the party of the senator and the governor, whether they're able to place them on an ideological scale. So say they're very liberal, somewhat liberal, moderate, very conservative, somewhat conservative, and whether they're able to evaluate their senators and governors, which is just to say whether or not they approve them, with the idea being that if people say they don't know how to place them or they don't know, they're not able to evaluate them, that means they don't have enough information about those office holders to be able to do so. And I find kind of very large effects of residing in an in-state media market on these knowledge measures. So for instance, for the ability to recall the party of the senator or governor, people who live in an in-state media market are about nine percentage points more likely to recall their senator and about 10 percentage points more likely to recall the party of their governor than someone who lives in an almost entirely out-of-state media market. One thing I also tested to kind of confirm the validity of the research design was whether there were differences in general or national political knowledge. Because if it just happens to be the case that the people who reside in these counties are different from the people who reside in the in-state market counties, then we might expect them to just be more knowledgeable about politics in general, not about their office holders in particular. And so I looked at a bunch of knowledge of party control of the House and the Senate, ability to place the parties on an ideological scale, placing the Democratic Party to the left, to the left of the Republican Party. And I didn't observe differences for people who reside in out-of-state markets relative to people who reside in in-state markets on these general national political knowledge measures, which was really kind of convincing to me, at least, that the research design has some validity and that the results are not likely driven just by unobserved differences between residents of in-state markets and out-of-state markets. Then when, we, when I took the next step to look at, okay, so I observed differences in terms of political knowledge, does that then have kind of an actual effect on voting behavior in the voting booth? And so I looked at casting a split ticket ballot for president senator and president governor. And so what I observed is that compared to people who live in almost entirely out of state markets, that is in, in a county for which their state makes up an, a very small share of the media market's population, People who reside in in-state markets are about two to three percentage points more likely to cast a split president-senator ballot. And people who live in an in-state media market are about four to five percentage points more likely to cast a split president-governor ballot. And these are kind of large effects when you consider that only about eight to nine percent of people are casting a split president-senator or split president-governor ballot. Are there any obvious 
solutions to that problem. So to the extent that local news is declining and to the extent that a lot of voters aren't getting information about their governors and senators and so forth, and to the extent that that's leading to the nationalization of elections, are there ways of addressing that problem or mitigating that problem if we think that you know it, it, this is hurting electoral accountability and hurting representation and so on? So I'm, I'm always hesitant to kind of draw normative conclusions because if we go back not that long ago, there is an APSA kind of task force or panel that was put together that basically bemoaned that the parties were indistinct from one another, that incumbency advantage was too large, that there, you know, there are all these ills of American politics that now we look back at those times and we're like, gosh, that looked a lot better than it does now. <laughs> you know, when we now have like pretty distinct parties from one another and it's resulting in all these you know, gridlock and lots of other issues that um, we're, we're very concerned about. So it's much easier to diagnose your present ills than it is to kind of forecast what would happen if things changed, because things might not be better if we if we do something. Um, there are lots of kind of unforeseen consequences. In terms of what to do about the media environment, there aren't, at least from my vantage point, lots of good solutions when it comes to newspapers. There's lots of complaints about kind of the acquisition of local newspapers by these large chains or private equity firms that are cutting the the reporting budgets, staff, et cetera, which is kind of making it more difficult for these newspapers to cover their local areas, their, their officials. What is the kind of solution to that such that these newspapers have the resources they need to function properly? Well, if it's not clear what the alternative is, other than kind of some sort of nonprofit model in which you just have these wealthy benefactors who are funding it out of the goodness of their heart, which isn't, it, it doesn't make me feel better about the situation because the benefactors could just as easily be evil rather than benevolent and just trying to um, get information out there to people in a way that is not kind of objective or unbiased or whatever other standards we kind of hope our newspapers strive for. So I don't, I don't have any good sense of what economic models exist um, that could kind of allow local sources of news to function in a way that we think is healthy for our democracy and, and is also sustainable in terms of their finances and, 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 and keeping them running. In terms of local television news, there are maybe some small steps that the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, can take to kind of preserve what they call localism in broadcast news. So the previous FCC uh, commissioner took some steps that were somewhat controversial, at least from the perspective of people who really want to preserve local broadcast television news. And so one of the things they did was they eliminated what's called the home studio rule, which used to require that stations have a studio located in their local media market. And the thought behind it is that if you get rid of that, then it kind of makes it easier for a conglomerate of stations or any sort of company that owns lots of stations across various media markets to kind of pipe in more nationalized programming into those local media markets. If you have, you know, reporters on the ground in the studio, then that might mean that you get more and better local coverage. So that was one change they made that Biden's commission, FCC, could potentially revert back to. They also lifted a kind of cap that restricted the number of stations that a single entity could own. In other words, there used to only have so much of an audience reach because of this cap. You could only reach some percentage of the American population that a single entity, the stations that they owned, could, could reach. That was lifted. 
And that allowed kind of the rise of potentially your, your Sinclairs, et cetera. It actually could have been further eroded, but to the surprise of many experts, Trump's FCC did not allow kind of a further expansion of Sinclair. But there is a lot of concern about this idea that a single entity can own stations across the entire country or large swaths of the country, and then they can pipe in more nationalized programming and less local programming for those local television newscasts. So there are certain restrictions that the FCC could take to kind of require that the content of these newscasts needs to be sufficiently local. Can you sort of give us a, like a, a two-minute kind of encapsulation of, of what, what the kind of thrust of the paper is and the key takeaway points are? It's a simple design, but it's a very clever one and a very useful one, which is he's looking at how voters vote in the same election, in the same state, but some of those voters happen to live in a media market where most or not all of their media market is in that state, and so all of their local news coverage is going to be about that state. If you live in Indianapolis, local news coverage is going to be about what's going on with the Indiana governor and the Indiana senators and so forth. If you live in northwest Indiana, you're going to be getting Chicago television. He finds that the people in Indianapolis are much less likely to vote for the same party across offices than the people in Northwest Indiana. Presumably because even, even though they might they might typically be a Democrat, let's say you supported you supported Joe Biden, you might find out that actually this year the the gubernatorial candidate from the Republican side is really experienced or really you know competent or or appealing in some other way. And you wouldn't have known that if you lived in Northwest Indiana. Yeah, for me, the paper is a good news, bad news story. Good news is that it's not uh, what many people actually say in the media or even in, in political science, that people just vote based on the party affiliation. You know, they, they think of themselves of, as Democrats the, the same way they think of themselves as supporting, you know, red socks or whatever <laughs> your favorite. I know nothing about American sports. But <laughs> the sports team, not the the, the clothing item, red socks. Yeah, just FC Barcelona. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's this narrative in the media and also in political science that voters just treat parties as, as sports teams. And no matter what you do as a politician, you are not going to be rewarded or punished for that. It all depends on whom, whom you're affiliated with. So in a sense, Daniel's paper is good news. The bad news is, unfortunately, it seems that people are getting less and less of this information. Uh, so they behave as if politicians and parties were just sports teams. Which is, you know, Anthony's sort of favorite notion of the voters is that they're just casting votes blindly for, <laughs> out, out, of, right, out of naive allegiance to their favorite sports team. But Anthony, can, can, say, can, like, why should we care about split ticket voting? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, it, I'm sure many of us have voted for the same party in lots of different elections, and we don't think we did so because we were unsophisticated or stupid or, you know, or naively brand oriented or something like that. But the the, the troubling pattern is if, if it looks like voters always vote for the same party no matter what, then what incentive do politicians have to actually do a good job? And so you can understand why people are concerned about this increasing nationalization of elections and nationalization of voting behavior and decline in split ticket voting. And so one reason we care is that we want people to actually try to figure out which candidate is better. And, and every once in a while, that might, be, you know, that might be the other party that you typically don't support. One way to understand what these effects are is that with this additional information, voters are evaluating candidates differently. And on the basis of those evaluations, they're casting votes that differ. Alternatively, what you might say is, is that elected officials recognizing the systematic differences in the extent to which an electorate is receiving information about them are altering their behavior, right? And so if I happen to have my base in 
right? Northwest Indiana, and I'm a governor of Indiana, and I say, look, my base isn't getting as much information about me. That might induce me to take a set of positions or behave in a way that differs. That, that, and it's that, that change in behavior, which again is not observed, is what induces then the split ticket voting. No, 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 because I don't uh, no. So, <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I get the p first part of your story that if you know that your voters get very little information about you, you will presumably behave differently. You have less incentives perhaps to exert effort, uh, more incentives to engage in corruption because the outcome of the election is not going to depend on those actions. But how does this feed back into voting straight ticket? I don't see it. I, I buy I buy what Will's saying. I think let me I can try to can try to connect the dots. Maybe you know Daniel's paper is is more about the voters, but I think the implications for politicians are really important because what we care about is are, is you know are good policies being made and so forth. So think about this comparison. If you are if you're the governor of Utah, the Salt Lake City media market more or less is the same as the state of Utah, not exactly, but pretty close. And so. Everybody who lives in Utah for local TV coverage, they're, getting, they're, they're learning what you're doing. If you're the governor of New Jersey, nobody in New Jersey is getting a lot of local television coverage about New Jersey because you either live in the Philadelphia media market or you live in the New York City media market. And so if you're the governor of New Jersey, you have much less incentive to work hard, do a good job, implement policies that the voters want because um, nobody will even find out if you do. And so you might as well slack off a little bit, engage in a little bit of corruption and so forth. And it probably is fair to say just that, you know, there probably is a lot more corruption happening in the New Jersey State House than in the Utah State House on average. Uh, and maybe that's even one of the reasons, although, you know, that's that's not a great study that I just, just did, but uh, but you see the idea. And so the implication of Daniel's story is very important for the actual policies that get implemented in your where you are. And that and that also relates back to how people vote, because of course, when people do a bad job in Utah, they, the voters will vote against them. And when the governor does a bad job in New Jersey, the voters often won't know. And they'll just vote for the same party they vote for usually in presidential elections. Yeah, so you are saying that in situations where there's uh, very little accountability, the reason for straight ticket voting would be that voters just have no reason to vote in favor or against a particular candidate because they have very little information, so they just fall back on party cues, you know, there's like slight emotional affiliation with, with a particular party. That could be, that could be. <laughs> and of course, there are, you know, there are studies that focus on precisely this kind of thing. So they use the same idea. You know, there are studies that look at differences across congressional districts in terms of how well aligned are congressional districts and newspaper media markets, for example. Um, and you do find that when the congressional district doesn't align very closely with the newspaper media market, then the member of Congress tends to vote in a more extreme manner or not show up to committee hearings more often and so forth. And, and when, they, when, when there is a close alignment, they work harder and they do a better job. And so these kinds of things do matter for, you know, the way that voters are represented and the policies that get made. One question we could we could try to think about a little bit is, is the numbers that Daniel is getting and are these numbers high enough to make us worry about accountability? Because at the end of the day, you know, we don't care that every voter in New Jersey knows about what the governor is doing. It's fine if, if some fraction of the population votes always Republican and some fraction votes always Democrat, as long as we have enough voters in the middle who actually pay attention to the news, who are informed. Perhaps we can't, we can't really look at his numbers too carefully, but what he told us is that around 8% uh, people do seem to be responsive to some information because they vote for they, they, they do engage in split ticket voting. The access to good media market seems to increase that number by four percentage points. 
So, you know, it seems like a huge increase, but perhaps already this 8% who are switching their votes based on information is still enough to provide accountability. And I think this is this is a question that definitely is not answered in this um, in this research, and, and it's a very interesting question. So there's a few things to say about that. I mean, one, you know, Daniel's estimates don't really tell us what share of voters really, you know, care about the performance of the governor and vote accordingly. It could be the case that most of the time, just by using your normal partisan leaning, you'll sort of get the right answer in the sense that even if you were more informed, that's probably the candidate you would have voted for anyway. I mean, that must be true more often than not that, you know, maybe if I don't pay very close attention to what's going on in the Illinois gubernatorial race and I just vote for my normal party, I'll, I'll be right more often than not. So in some sense, the fact that I, that I get, say, a two, three, four percentage point effect, depending on the specification, that's a lower bound on the number of people that really care, right? Of course, there, there are a lot more people who probably would have voted differently had the information been different, had had their their uh, partisan-aligned governor actually done, been doing a really bad job, many more people would have would have potentially responded to the information. So that's one reason why the numbers are a little bit hard to interpret. It could be the case that, in fact, there are lots and lots of people who respond to this information, and that's enough of an incentive for the governor to actually do a good job and not engage in corruption and not psych off and so forth. And then there's the other complicated part of this, which is that just because there's a vote share effect doesn't mean that that's actually tipping a lot of election results, right? Illinois is a pretty democratic state. Even if you way underperform the Democratic Party, typical performance in Illinois, you're, the Democrat is still usually going to win. And so maybe there's still not a whole lot of incentive for somebody like J.B. Pritzker to work really hard and avoid corruption because, you know, he'd have to, he'd have to be astoundingly bad to lose re-election. Not, I mean, that's, you know, they do lose and, you know, Democrats have lost in Illinois, but that's another, that's another complex part of the story that you have to think about. So you're pointing to how close you are to the margin, right? Are these effects big enough to somehow tip an election? Though also are concerns about the extent to which changes in split ticket voting on one side may well be offset by the other side. That is, the, the, the incidence of split ticket voting could you know, go through the roof, but they're offsetting effects. And that the, the, the votes that Republicans, standard Republicans give up to Democrats are offset by, you know, a rise in uh, votes that usual Democrats now are giving to Republicans, and you get the same electoral outcome. I was just going to say, we do, we, we do know that on average, there are lots of these effects. On average, more mod, ideologically moderate candidates do better. We know that voters respond to the economy, for example. And so we know that on average, there are things that lead voters to change their votes in a systematic direction. It's not like these informed the voters are, the more they're able to take whatever their preferences are and translate them into votes. And, and there is going to be some on average systematic effect here. So, um, I don't know. I think it varies. My guess is that it varies. Here, let me give you a specific example. It doesn't involve a candidate, but it involves learning about charter schools. Right? Here's a specific issue. You could learn more about it. Like, what is a charter school? Most people don't have a clue what a charter school is. It turns out when you inform citizens, here is, let me, let me tell you that they are in fact public schools. They are funded by the government. And prayer is actually not allowed in them. That has the effect of increasing support for charter schools among liberals and decreasing support among Republicans, but av- on average, the level of support that you observe is it doesn't isn't doesn't shift very much one way or another. Even though there are big changes within each groups, so this is like a case where more information you start seeing changes within parties in their willingness to support a in this case a policy, uh, but that they're offsetting. Uh, and then when you think about tabulating votes, if they are offsetting, right? But surely you also agree that there are some things that are that are common sure, value. Sure. That, sure. Um, when 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 we find out that you know that the governor did engage in corruption on some massive scale, that should affect everybody at least directionally in the, in the same direction. Those are the things that we want the voters to have 
We want them to have that information when they make their decisions. And in your story, Will, the charter school doesn't have a choice. <laughs> it is what it is. And in politics, politicians have a choice. So presumably the charter school could decide, well, we have more conservatives if in a given district. We actually want to have prayer in our school. And, and in this sense, more information would lead to a better choice by the charter school. And here I'm choice putting choice in quotation marks. In this sense, when you, when you apply this logic to politics, better information should lead politicians to choose actions that benefit a larger group of people. So I think in this in this sense, I think even though Daniel doesn't show us really that the behavior of the politician changes, I think we can be relatively confident that more people splitting their votes gives more incentives for the politicians to choose to make better decisions. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a black hole? Or why time only moves in one direction? Or what is really so weird about quantum mechanics? Then you should listen to Why This Universe. On this podcast, you'll hear about the strangest and most interesting ideas in physics, broken down by physicists Dan Hooper and Shalma Wegsman. If you want to learn about our universe, from the quantum to the cosmic, you won't want to miss Why This Universe, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. I want to I wanna address one other thing that's related a little bit to what you are saying. So, yeah, I think we agree in general more information is good in this setting. But, you know, in our conversation, we sort of equated more information with more access to media, more local coverage of the local politicians. But, you know, we cannot forget the type of coverage that media are providing nowadays. It seems that media moved away from a model where, you know, you want to be the trusted source of news to a model where you want to be entertaining you want to keep people's attention with catchy stories. And I think there's this still big question, which is completely outside of Daniel's paper, but I think we should think about it when we think about the implication of his papers and maybe policy prescriptions. Are people who have access to this media that covers their local politicians, are they better informed? Or is it that they're perhaps swayed by crazy stories, by partisan accusations? So perhaps, perhaps at the end of the day, their voting is less informed than the vote of people who maybe don't have access to the news, but they just look at their lives and they see, am I happy under this governor? Has my life improved or not? I mean, he has a pretty straightforward measure of political knowledge about local versus national candidates. And what he shows is that those people who live in media markets that don't cross borders, right, and therefore they get more information about state and local officials, they are more likely to know about them, right? Just sort of basic facts. Yeah, but what do I know about them? I, I know their name because I've heard this crazy story about their the trip that they took to Cancun or things like that. But perhaps this is not actually the story that I should be focusing on if I want to make an informed decision. While me living in northern Indiana, I might be thinking, you know, I don't even recall the name of my governor. But that doesn't matter because the moment I go to vote, I know who is the incumbent or, you know, I'm going to just figure out who's the incumbent, and I'm going to say, my life has improved in the last four years, so I'm going to vote for the incumbent. So I think the story that access to media was a good thing is the story, definitely the story of the past, but is this the story of the present? I'm not so sure. The, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you're raising a good, some very good points, and if you, and, and if you do watch local news, I think, you know, any particular day, you're not going to get much information that's going to likely to be pivotal for your vote. So all of that's fair, although it would be, to say that 
voters are worse with with media would be to would be to not have a lot of faith in their reasoning ability. So yeah, so I'm not I'm not saying about you know you don't you don't change your vote. I'm I'm actually saying you might change your vote based on the information you get. But if you get slanted information, you know there are a lot of models with reasonably rational voters where, where you can manipulate voters by selectively giving them information. And you can also think of stories of attention. You know, I'm getting all this information about some strange uh, disputes that politicians engaged in, and, and I'm basing my votes on, based on their behavior in those disputes. But then I'm not paying attention to actually what those politicians were doing, what kind of policies they passed, and what kind of ordinances they, they proposed. So I can, you know, I can be rational, but if I, if I, no, yeah, I get it. But you still, you still have that information, even if you, if you watch the news and you get the slant and all that, you still also get to see, you know, did my paycheck go up or down this year? Do the roads seem to be better paved or worse paved? So everybody has that information. True. So maybe, maybe I have to confess here <laughs> that I do uh, believe that there is some behavioral component, you know, like in, in people's behavior, like you have, you have limited attention. I think. I think we have a rift on our podcast now. <laughs> For the first time, we have a rift between because Anthony in every turn is saying, "But they're, the, the voters will sort it out, right? They'll make sense of it, and they'll have this basic level of information. And more information at the margin is only going to improve." It. What you're saying is, "No, maybe it leads to these distortions, and that the voters, in an important way, are made worse off. That is, they overweight things relative to what they should be weighting them when they think about, in an objective way, their own well-being." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I, again, you know, in my private life, I fall behind Anthony very strongly. <laughs> All my research assumes that people are rational. But I think, you know, I've been watching a lot of TV recently and I'm trying, starting to doubt my rationality. <laughs> uh, and we, before we started this podcast, we, we had this conversation, Anthony, that, you know, you go, you read the New York Times, you form one opinion, and then you go and listen to Fox News and, and you hear a completely different set of information. And then you form your opinion based on what you've heard from those two sources. Yes, well, and I th- yeah, I mean, to, and to clarify, I mean, I think when you get hyper-polarized news like that, you're essentially getting almost no information. But I, th- but I, think, but I think people can sort that out. I think maybe not everybody, and maybe, you know, I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to see a compelling study of this to see maybe, maybe people can be bamboozled, but I think, I think there might be a lot of people who see hyper-partisan news and they just say, okay, so I guess, I guess I didn't learn very much about whether the governor's doing a good job because the New York Times says one thing and the Wall Street Journal says a complete opposite. Yeah, but you are a person who goes and reads the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, but think about a person who has always been reading the New York Times and it has been always, pro- it had been always providing good information to this person and then over time, New York Times became less reliable, but it will take you a while to figure it out. Unless you go and start looking at other uh, sources of news and, and, and some independent journalism. So at least for a while, you can be, you know, you, you can trust uh, biased media and that's going to affect your decision in a negative way. You know, we have, paid, we have research showing that this might be the case. It's possible. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to see the compelling study on that one way or the other. But, 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 but in the meantime, I'm happy to give the benefit of the doubt to the voters and say that more information for them is at least on net in expectation going to improve their decision making rather than rather than. I is it you 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 mentioned what was it Cancun Gate like isn't imagine you're in is what you have in mind that you are in Texas and you you watch a thousand stories on how awful it is that Ted Cruz did this right what that has the effect of doing is upweighting that behavior in your evaluation of Cruz and ignoring 
or downweighting or not being sensitive enough to your lack of knowledge about all the votes that he cast on deregulating this and um, spending on that, right? That's the distortion that's introduced. Exactly. So if I'm actually inclined to to like uh, Ted Cruz and I hear the news telling me about Cancun Gate all the time, I can infer if I don't take into account that the media are trying to manipulate me, I can infer that perhaps there's nothing else that they can say about Ted Cruz. No, no other negative uh, coverage of Ted Cruz. This is the worst they were able to find. So I'm actually updating my beliefs about Ted Cruz positively. And if I'm, you know, you, you can put it the other direction. Like I'm, I'm predisposed not to like Ted Cruz. I think he actually has a horrible voting record and he's horrible for Texas. And now they are on top of that throwing this Cancun thing. I'm assuming, that, you know, he, he's, he's horrible. There's nothing good to learn about him. While there might be a lot of legitimate information that they could have provided me uh, that would actually change my, my belief. Perhaps he actually is great for for state of Texas. Perhaps he actually delivered a lot of inf- on infrastructure in one way or another. So I, I'm giving here sort of acknowledging what uh, Anthony is saying, that if the vote is completely rational and they know what's the sort of the universe of information that's out there and what's the slant of the media, then they can undo all these biases. But not completely, because I really don't know what this information that they are not showing me is. But, you know, I, I think we can believe that, at least in the short term, people can be swayed by this kind of selective coverage. Certainly. So I think we're agreeing. I think we're agreeing on that part, that people people are swayed by the news they consume, and people can be swayed by campaigns, although I doubt that many people were swayed by Cancun Gate, but in principle, you could be. So that does give some power to your local news team, because they can, just by changing what they emphasize, they can potentially change your vote. But that doesn't mean that the voters are worse off than if they had no information. So maybe that's where we have the disagreement. It doesn't mean that they're not either. We just can't speak to that. Yeah, and I think I'm willing to give Anthony a win that, you know, yes, probably on average we are not harming the society too much by exposing them to local media. But I'm just worried that you you discussed with Daniel possible solutions to the problem, that maybe we should change the media markets, give some incentives to media to to, to increase uh, local coverage and so on. And I'm just saying, given what I see, what's happening in the media, how they are chasing uh, entertainment and not necessarily hardcore important information, I don't know how big of an effect of, of this kind of interventions would be. I'm compromising a little bit, going to the middle. <laughs> <laughs> let me well, let me compromise too. I'll try to be. I'll try to be. Oh, this is no fun. We finally had a cleavage, and you guys are like coming right well, back together. I'll I'll reopen it here in a second. But but what you know, I mean, one thing I could say is one reason why I really don't like a lot of the discussion of the irrational voters is because very often it goes hand in hand with a particular form of paternalism. It goes hand in hand with the voters are irrational, they're dumb, and I know what's better for them than they do. American political behavior literature has a, has a lot of that in the and that makes me very uncomfortable. Even if I concede that, of course, nobody's perfectly rational and nobody's, the voters are not like solving, you know, they're not using Bayes' rule when they watch the news exactly. Nevertheless, whatever way in which they deviate from rationality, I am not comfortable saying, here's what will be better for them. Instead of, instead of them getting that information, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off their TV channel so they can't see that. 
because I know that they'll actually make better. Like that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, but I think here we agree. Like I, in a sense, I'm saying what I'm saying is, uh, look, I like having TV on and getting some news while I'm cooking my dinner, and I know that listening to CNN makes me actually probably. You know, on, in one dimension, I'm more informed, but in another dimension, I'm, I'm becoming more biased. I, I, I can't explain what the model of me is, but I feel this is what's happening when I'm listening to, for, to CNN. So I wish I had actually access to, you know, to, to, to a much better source of information. I agree with that completely. So in this yes. sense, I'm, yes. I'm a rational, irrational person. So, Viola, all right, we've gone round and round on this. What's your bottom line? So I like the paper a lot. I think it gives a compelling story for why we see people voting for the same party uh, at the national and local level. It seems that voters are rational and when they do so, it's not necessarily because they just blindly follow the party cues, but perhaps because they don't have enough information not to. I'm left a little bit... Um, worried because I don't know what we can do about this. If we think that this voting that we observe is, leads to lower accountability, I really don't know how we can improve that. And you, you feel that because there are strong market forces that push in the other direction, because there are powerful reasons for local media to behave the way that it does, and it's not clear what a corrective would look like? Yeah, at least that's what we've seen in the last few years. So and that's not to say we shouldn't be trying, and I think maybe there's room for some nonprofits uh, to to jump in. Perhaps there's room for the government to regulate, but I don't see it clearly. I don't see a very clear policy solution. What do you think, Anthony? Well, I you know I share um, Viola's enthusiasm for the paper. I think it's a, I think it's a great paper. I think it documents something that um, is really important in American politics. That in fact, more information does change people's votes. On the normative questions, my, you know, my own inclination is that uh, more information changes their votes for the better. But regardless, I think that's a valuable thing to have documented. And I think it's also important because of these big trends that we're seeing with the increases in nationalization and the decreases in local news coverage. I think all of that's really important for us to understand. It changes how we think about how voters behave, what the incentives are for elected officials. And I think a, a lot of it is normatively reassuring. But as, as Viola said, it's not easy to think of solutions to this kind of decline in local news. It's not easy to come up with good policy solutions. Um, and maybe, you know, we, we can have many future episodes about, you know, different, different policy solutions. But, but on net, I think whatever we could do to try to at least get more information to the voters so that they, when the governor is doing a good or a bad job, they find out about it, I think is probably going to be good on net for democracy and electoral accountability. So I come out similarly. I think it's a terrific paper. It is it, at once super careful and clear about what it's estimating. The findings are compelling and kind of on the horizon are big questions and big concerns about longstanding trends in the media and uh, longstanding trends in the nationalization of our politics and deep-seated concerns about accountability. I guess I would say what I hope to see future papers on are bring some, our efforts to bring some of these concerns that we have into view. That is to see how changes in information induce changes in the behavior of people who actually occupy positions of power, be it by reference to the effort that they give or to the positions that they take. And when we think about kind of the health of our democracy, those strike me as absolutely first order concerns. And that we as a discipline and in our you know, political scientists doing work on American politics have grown accustomed to saying, you know, more split ticket voting, right? That's the 
the extent to which we see increases in that, we find that normative re normatively reassuring. Um, but that's because split-ticket voting is standing in for all kinds of ideas that we have about what's going on in the heads of, of voters. And to get more direct evidence of those things would be good. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.